Welcome to the Screen the Screener College Basketball Podcast with your hosts, Mike Randall and Gus Kearns. They were right there. Gus Baylor was right there. Kansas was as ripe for the taking as an apple that's about to fall off the tree in October. Welcome to the Screen the Screener Podcast. We talk all things NCAA basketball. Mike Randall here with Gus Kearns. Gus, they were right there. Listen, your guys put up a valiant fight. They were live all evening, and a couple of things that we predicted happened went down, but then a couple of other things that were wild cards just didn't help out your Baylor Bears. Welcome to the Screen the Screener podcast, everybody. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. We're happy to have you on board. We hope to uh, distract you a little bit from your Super Bowl weekend and maybe hopefully aid in eating less chips at the party. How's that sound? Does that sound all right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, not pig out on the on the chip bowl. We're we're also hoping to get you prepped. We want to get your mind right for when this football season finally comes to a close, so you can put your focus in the proper place, which is going to be college basketball, NCA hoops, and again, now it's just a month and a little bit more away, March Madness. So we're going to say thank you. We're humbled. We're honored to talk NCA hoops with you guys. Uh, Mike and I are fired up to go through a whole bunch of things. Ready to go, Mike? Yeah, ready to go. Let's start. You know, let, let's be let's be uh, men of the people here. Let's start with the Super Bowl. Gus, what do you think? I mean, it's a yeah. big game, right? Most watched television show in the history of the world or whatever it is. Why don't we give our Super Bowl predictions here? So, Gus, we got the New England Patriots, a little fishy line maybe for you. I don't know, going to the NFL. Favored <laughs> by three over the Atlanta Falcons. Gus, give us uh, your Super Bowl prediction. My Super Bowl prediction is very quick here. I think this falls into the category of the Atlanta Falcons had to jump a whole bunch of hurdles to get here. Not that they're happy to be here. I think their defense is very Seattle Seahawkish from two years ago, where they play sideline to sideline, have a whole bunch of speed, and tackle really well. I think Matt Ryan needed a Super Bowl to kind of uh, cement him as like one of the elite quarterbacks. But I'm just going to go and I'm going to say that the Patriots – in some weird karmic move in the NFL universe, are going to win this game. Tom Brady gets his fifth. Belichick cemented as one of the greatest coaches of all time, any sport. And the Patriots come out on top. Yeah, I totally agree with you. Uh, I think the Patriots take it here. Belichick's got this boat. I watched a special once where he changes the name based on the titles. So he always names the boat after the next ring. So right now, his boat is called Five Rings. I think Mr. Belichick is going to be making it Six Rings, which is disturbing uh, because I think no co- nobody's won more than four as an, a head coach. So I think they take it. I think they have physical on them. I love Matt Ryan. Love what Atlanta's done. Give me a little Jamal Anderson you know, doing the, uh, the bird dance from years ago. But I'm with you. I think Patriots take it. So there's our official uh, screen the screener Super Bowl picks. What do you think? Good. Oh. Yeah, sure. I, I wasn't expecting that. But yeah, uh, I, my eyes will be on the game, but not totally focused on it. And everybody else's eyes will be focused on everything else. Uh, enjoy the commercials, everybody. Hopefully there's a couple of uh, college basketball commercials sprinkled in there with uh, like dancing monkeys and other funny stuff. Yeah, commercials are always fun. I, I went on the Just Talking with Sam podcast last night, Gus out of Detroit. Gave my Super Bowl prediction there with Sam. Great podcast, tremendous guy. So felt we should start with it here. Without further ado, we have a lot to talk about. I have to stop blowing into a paper bag like I was on Twitter last night. Let's start with our <laughs> with our news and notes. News and notes from the hardwood. All right, Gus, let's pick up with Baylor. I'll give you my thoughts real quick, and then you can jump on in, of course. So 
they played really well. It's impossible to win in Fog Allen. They were ripe for the taking. Kansas is really struggling right now. They have the whole issue with Carlton Bragg. Now LeGerald Vick is getting some comments about an is- a potential violence issue that occurred against a female two years ago in 2015. So they were ripe. They were not deep. We have, what's his name, Lightfoot coming in, playing minutes. I mean, if you want a script for Baylor, and they were right there. It just, when it came down from what I saw, first of all, it was Josh Jackson. That's number one. Who, by the way, I want to call the Matrix. Do I have the ability, Gus, to take a nickname from someone else, Sean Marion, eliminate it from them, and reapply it to someone who's definitely going to be the NBA? Because he is the Matrix. He was a, a huge factor. Mason was, was great as always, but Jackson was the key. And Baylor's execution down the stretch. They yeah. couldn't get it done. How about we go Matrix Reloaded? I'll take that. It's good. Yeah, Matrix Reloaded. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, Matrix make Matrix re- Reloaded for Josh Jackson. Yeah, you know what? I think that was the difference. And we talked about how if Baylor was going to pull this game out, how their backcourt, uh, Manolo Comp, uh, you know, we highlighted him. He said that he had to be competent, take care of the ball, and not get pushed around and manhandled by the you know, by the veteran backcourt of Mason and Graham. And it just seemed like that Mason and Graham had a little bit more control over the game outcome uh, than the Baylor backcourt. And I think that was the difference. I mean, and yeah, Josh Jackson is unbelievable. Like, he's playing at an unbelievably high level. Let's just put him at, like, an All-American type level uh, with Frank Mason. I think both those guys are balling out. The fact that they have two guys that are playing on that level is going to make this team really hard to beat and really hard to dethrone in the Big 12. But there are a couple of positives here for Baylor that it's just not going to be a total wash. Um, do you want to go into some of the positives that you saw for Baylor, uh, maybe off the bench and otherwise? Yeah, definitely. I, I thought Terry Mastin, junior Terry Mastin was fantastic off the bench. Only played 12 minutes. He's got to play more. Uh, he's got to play more because of their lack of execution down the stretch. Had 14 points in just 12 minutes. The issue is that Jolo is tremendous. He had 10 points, 8 rebounds, 2 blocks, Gus, right? Does a great job. Yeah. But Bill Self, really, i got to give him credit. I've been hard on him in the past. Just a brilliant defensive game plan. The, the, the switch to zone again, and at the last possession, which I thought was critical, did you see what they did in man-to-man? They mm-hmm. left Jolo. They were up 3, and Jolo's in the game. They're leaving him. They're leaving him to hedge hard on those screens. They're jumping out of LeCon. They know where Motley is. He's an offensive liability. He's tremendous when they're playing from ahead because he's going to get rebounds. He's going to block shots. He's not terrible from the free throw line either. But when you need baskets down the stretch, he's tough. Mastin's got to play more. He's got to mix it up a little bit there. There were listen. There were some great things. Motley dominated in the first half. I think he had fourteen points, something like that. Yeah. And then they went to zone, and he never got the ball. He took two shots. Gus, the best player on the team, who's going to be some sort of All American third team, whatever it is this year. He got two shots. One he made, and one was the fast break he missed. It can't happen, Scott Drew. You have you can come up with quick hitters against zones. You can come up quick hitters against junk. It is possible. They're not going to win with Manu Lacant hitting. Banked in threes, and by the way, that was they claim he's got fouled. Who cares? It, it's it, he got banked a shot, and you shouldn't even made it to begin with. We're going right. to complain about an after swat from Frank Mason. That's just gutless. They have to come up with better execution. They've played from in front in those games that they've won, and that's where they really struggle. Listen, when they play them at home in Waco, 
I think Baylor has a really, really, really good shot to win. I think Freeman shoots better at home. I think Wainwright shoots better at home. Those guys are big guards, so they were able to guard Graham and guard Mason and cause Jackson a little bit of trouble. But mm-hmm. as the game went on, Jackson did it all. He rebounds Gus. He shoots. He's got a hitch in his in his jump shot. Doesn't matter. A little struggle from the foul line, but we're 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 picking at, at grasping at straws here. The guy is a winner. He's a great all-around player. You called the beginning of the year. Put him on the All-American team. Great job out of you. Real nice win for Kansas. Yeah, you know what? So you you hit on a couple of things. Uh, one, Baylor obviously needed to situationally substitute a little bit keener here than they did in the endgame situation. Uh, your point about uh, Kentucky, uh, uh, Kansas leaving Joe Lowe, and not having a fifth offensive option on the floor in that particular situation really hurt them. And then also balancing out Maston's numbers with Jolo's numbers uh, and and trying to find Motley a different avenue against that zone. I mean, maybe put him in the middle of the zone um, where marketing plays for Arizona. That might be a place to put Motley because he can operate from the foul line. So it just seemed like they needed to make a couple of uh, in-game adjustments that they weren't able to make and you know what sometimes when you're on the road at fog allen and and you're coaching you're, you know you're coaching your heart out you're coaching your brains out sometimes those opportunities don't seem so clear in the moment so not that i'm blaming scott drew for these things but those were th- adjustments that he definitely could have made i'm sure he's kicking himself today because he knew he was this close to taking them out at, on the road at fog allen i think i think it's only in a specific case to gus when they're playing against the zone if they're mm-hmm. playing against man motley's gonna get a touch yeah. So they're going to run stuff. They'll cross. They'll, they'll cross screen flash with Motley and Jolo. But when you're playing a zone, everyone slows down, right? And that zone extended, and Mason and Graham or Jackson are superior athletes. Totally disrupted Baylor's offense. It was Manu, who's undersized, coming off a screen and getting hedged hard. Motley couldn't get the ball. Jolo's not an offensive threat. Wainwright and Freeman were, were not active. Against the zone, they're going to struggle. If the team plays man, they'll get the ball to Motley, uh, you know, and then everything will open up from there. But if you if you play them as zone, they're really going to struggle unless they're shooting hot from, from three. Also, I think kudos to Coach Self because the move to the zone was a very big risk-reward decision. He knew that that could really open up some holes on, on the boards, both uh, offensively and defensively, because there was no accountability for his players. So I think that was a risk that he was willing to take, and the risk paid off. And sometimes good coaches take guarded risks, and I think this was one that he's kind of smiling at, but also knows in the back of his head, like the next time he pulls that, it might not work out as well as it did in this particular game. Definitely, and I give Self a lot of credit. Back-to-back, on the road to Kentucky, home against Baylor, doesn't get much better than that. <laughs> yeah, uh, we can throw them into the conversation now of like you know one of the best resumes in the country that we, you know, we've, we've kind of touched on this each podcast with um, you know, Butler and Baylor and um, Arizona now, and maybe take a closer look at um, maybe take a closer look at Kansas now with these two last wins. Really, really impressive. No doubt. Uh, so, just three quick things before we get to the other games. I uh, just want to get your reaction on it. So, first, yeah. first off, Coach K's back. Came out today. Coach K's coming back against Pittsburgh on Saturday. Quick reaction from that. I think it's probably a little bit quicker than you know we anticipated or that was going to be reported. I think he realizes the desperation of his team and of his program. So he's doing the only thing that he knows that he can do to you know help that desperate feeling is to just put himself in the place that he's been most successful in his whole entire life, which is on the sideline. I also feel he has 
a view of this team that can still dominate this year. And I, I think he wants to try to recapture that as quickly as possible before it starts spiraling in the wrong direction, which it was doing before these last two wins. So I, th- I think he, he's, I think there's an urgency to his return for his team and his program and his players and his student athletes. And I think this takes a lot of pressure off the coaching staff that was doing a, a fine job with all the moving parts and all the drama that was surrounds this team. And I'm hoping that his return is nothing but a stabilizing force for the program, the student athletes, and the rest of the coaching staff. And I hope that the vision that he had at the beginning of the season and the vision of like a, a number of the voters who, who voted them as the preseason uh, number one team in the country, I hope that he's able to move a little bit closer towards that vision. Yeah, I'm curious to see what he's going to do with his lineups. He had Giles starting and Allen at the point. When he went out, and now the team has sort of changed uh, with Allen and Kennard and, uh, you know, having having Emil Jefferson starting and Giles coming off the bench. So I was curious to see what he going to do with that. But certainly I think I expect his, his, him coming back to the sideline is going to give them a lot of uh, – a, a lot of they're going to be fired up on Saturday, that's for sure. Uh, two quick awards have come out. The finalists, Gus, for two awards, two, the two forwards of the year. We'll start with the power forward, the Carl Malone, power forward of the year finalist. Given annually to the nation's top power forward, Gus, here are the finalists, and then I'd like to know your pick, my friend. You got it. Larry Markin of Arizona, Jonathan Motley of Baylor, Ivan Rabb of California, Diedrich Lawson of Memphis, Miles Bridges, Michigan State, Bonzi Colson of Notre Dame, Michael Young of Pittsburgh, Caleb Swanigan of Purdue, TJ Leaf of UCLA, Alec Peters of Valparaiso. Who do you got, Gus? Stacked list. Absolutely stacked. I'm going with my man Biggie. No doubt. He has proven to be the finest power forward and perhaps the finest player in the country this year. He is definitely in the top five, if not top three, for uh, player of the year in the country. And so I think that awards him the Carl Malone Power Forward finalist uh, award of the year. And you know what? I don't know if anybody's made this comparison, but he's added that little step back jumper from like the elbow extended that was like a Carmelone staple back in the day. You know, he stick that one leg out for a little extra balance, a little fadeaway happening there. I think it's very apropos, and I think it's unbelievably well-deserved, and I hope that other people put him as uh, the favorite as well. Yeah, I think it's Biggie. I don't think it's even a question. We'll get to him later in on Broadway. 19th double-double of the season so far, breaking Purdue's single-season record. There's some great people up here. Markinen, Motley, of course. But I think it's Biggie. Uh, he's got my vote as well. Let, let's go to the Julius Irving, Dr. J, Small Forward of the Year finalist award Ooh. given to the nation's top small forward. Here we go, Gus, and give me your pick. Evan Brads, the one who, who got you on the Stump Gus segment of, <laughs> of the last question, of Belmont. Uh, Keelan Martin of Butler. Jerron Blossom game of Clemson. Jason Tatum of Duke. Dwayne Bacon of Florida State, Josh Jackson of Kansas, Justin Jackson of North Carolina, Josh Hart of Villanova, Trevon Blewett of Xavier. This is a tough one, Gus. Who you got? Listen, to me, it's a two-person race. It's Josh Jackson and Josh Hart. Unbelievably impressed by the other players on the list, but I think those two are a clear separation from the rest of the names on this list. And if I had to lean one way or the other, I think we have to go Josh Hart as your small forward of the year. Josh Jackson is, I'll tell you right now, he's closing fast, especially after that game uh, with Baylor. But I think if you're going to go for a player of the year overall, I think he's also in the conversation with uh, with 
Biggie Swanigan. He may be the leader in the clubhouse right now, according to how you're going to you know, do your voting. So I think if we're going to go one way or another here, I think it has to be Josh Hart from Villanova. I agree. I, I like Josh Hart as well. Justin Jackson's been tremendous. You know, I love Jerron Blossom game. He's not in the same level. I don't know how Jason Tatum's in here, Gus. I have to I, personally. I think that's ridiculous. I understand Tatum's highly regarded. I do right. not think this guy has been scoring anywhere near any of these other guys. So I, this is bizarre to me. You can even make a case lately for Trevon Blewett, who may go off now that Sumner's out. But yes, yeah. I would vote Josh Hart, uh, Josh Jackson right behind him. Justin Jackson as well has been tremendous. He's been great. You can go any way there. Uh, and, and gosh, Dwayne Bacon's not even going to be in the conversation, and he had the 29 against Virginia. So uh, those three quick things. Uh, let's head now and recap some more games. What do we got next? Hey, do you want to do like a uh, – you want to recap the loser leaves match, uh, loser leaves town situation? Always. Uh, we, yeah, we gave you guys a, a, a like a threefer, like three games where we really had to pay attention to the, the loser of this game would be in serious trouble in March, um, and their season could be heading the wrong direction. The winner – would really, really advance their resume. Um, so let's just take a quick rundown of those three games that we gave you um, a couple podcasts back. First one is in the Big East, and you know what? It played out perfectly, and it mentions one of the finalists uh, for the Small Forward Award, the Dr. J Award. Seton Hall falls to, that's right, Trayvon Blewett and Xavier, 72-70. to 70. Blewett hit a pull-up jumper in the lane with a, like under five seconds left to give Xavier the much-needed win. And he just followed that up uh, after his 40-point game. And three games back, I think he had uh, 20 again. So the guy is playing a little bit out of his head right now. So if we're going to, you know, maybe he moves up on that, like, small forward list for sure. What a week for Blewett. Unbelievable. And you know what I'm going to say to the next part is hashtag Dr. Tony knows. He called Quentin Gooden playing big minutes for Xavier. He played a career-high 35 minutes and helped Xavier with a win with seven assists. Only three turnovers, not bad for the Frosh. He didn't shoot it great from the field, but obviously he was crucial um, with his seven assists and helping Blewett um, get his big 24 points. It looks like Seton Hall, one year removed from winning the Big East tournament in the Garden against the eventual national champions, Villanova, is going to leave town in this match. Sorry, at Waika, 78. Losing five of, the six, five of your last six is just not going to get it done. Yeah, bad job by Seton Hall. They have a lot of talent. They're underachieving. To me, it's it's Willard. It falls on Willard's shoulders. This was a banged-up Xavier team. Dr. Tony and I both picked Xavier here. The reason being, my pick was against Willard. Dr. Tony mm-hmm. nailed Goodwin. Yep. Seton Hall, this was a golden opportunity. Great win for Xavier. Bad loss to Seton Hall. Not much else for me to say there. Just frustrating because yeah. Seton Hall should be so much better. I agree. I feel like I feel like they've been knocking on the door and just nobody's opening for them the whole entire time, the whole entire season. Uh, number uh, second of the loser leaves town three for another great game, another overtime game. What else could we want? TCU guts out a road win in overtime at Kansas State, uh, eighty six to eighty. Our guy Kendrick Williams hit two gigantic threes in the overtime after being quiet in the scoring column all game. He finished with like his usual like crazy impressive stat line. He had 11 points, 10 boards, and he had four steals. The guy does a little bit of everything. The Horn Frogs and Coach Dixon really needed this win bad. It breaks a four-game losing streak coming in for them. So, I mean, if they go to five straight losses, I mean, they are definitely loser leaves town. The loss for K-State spins the Wildcats into their own three-game losing streak. And guess who they got next? 
they have back-to-back games with Baylor and Kansas next. <laughs> they're, they're in a little bit of trouble. Terrible. I, I personally got this one wrong. Nice win for TCU on the road. Kansas State, this is what you have to do what Maryland does. You have to win the games that you're supposed to win. They did not do that here. Bad loss for Kansas State. You got Baylor. You got Kansas in trouble. Bruce Weber, good job initially. Got things going in the right direction, but they're in a free fall. Jamie Dixon's doing a fantastic job. When we say loser leaves town, we are not joking. Um, the last one in this three for was uh, UCF versus Houston, and they just fell really hard. They lost 82-64. to 64. Our guy, Damon Dotson, put up a big 31 points to lead Houston to the win. Houston kept the rebound, rebounding margin pretty close, and they shot it great from three-point land, uh, over 45%. This keeps Houston at 7-4 and four in conference, 16-7 uh, and seven overall, with two huge road games for them coming up at Tulsa and at Tulane. Two winnable games. Tulsa will be tough, but if they get those two wins, they are looking great for March. And you know what? It's a shame your worst nightmare happened again. Of course, the thing that we've complained about and harped out on the podcast a whole bunch is foul trouble. Taco Fall, the 7-6 center difference maker um, for UCF, was limited to only 13 minutes. Um, He had a flagrant one called on him. When your difference maker is compromised in a road game that you're trying to win, it makes it almost impossible. The fact that he only had 13 minutes on the floor made it really tough for them, and it had to totally change their defensive scheme. So Houston, huge win. UCF, tough call with the foul trouble and Taco Fall not being able to be on the floor as long as they were hoping for. Yeah, the foul trouble is key. Uh, Taco got in foul trouble here, really hurt UCF. Teams have adjusted, though, Gus. Kansas is a prime example. Frank Mason, when he's getting attacked on the break, he stays vertical. He puts his two hands in the air, and he backpedals. And that's what teams have to start doing because the foul trouble is real and it changes the game. Players that are learning how to do that and not doing silly reaches or silly over the backs in the middle of the key, like Taco, he has trouble because he's so big, are going to learn. So, yeah, good one for Houston. Hey, do you want – it seemed like you had something cool set up. Do you want to, like, set this up for the listeners and then you and I will go through, like, maybe a little fortune teller segment for the listeners uh, since we need to get them ready for March? It seemed like you had, like, a a cool idea. So do you want to, like, bring this to the listeners and then, like, try to give our thoughts on it and make sense of it? Yeah, people seem to really like your your comments on on Coach Krzyzewski and mine on Virginia. So I decided to put together a little – uh, contender or pretender segment here, Gus. So basically, calendars turn to February, right? We want to start identifying those teams that we think can make a deep run in March. I have to define deep run. So I'll say, why don't we say win at least two games in your mind and contend for the Elite Eight? So when I ask you these four teams who have teams that have been up and down, sort of a roller coaster, what I'd like to hear from you is do you think they're a contender, meaning you feel confident they're going to win at least two games in the tournament and could go the Elite Eight or further? Or are they a pretender? Are they a team that maybe people are going to think are, is better than they are and they're really not going to have a shot? And this all came off of the, you know, what is Virginia rant that we talked about last time. Right. So uh, if you're ready, my friend, I'll give you a rundown of the four teams. I'll give you a little spiel and then give us a comment and classify them as contender or pretender. Sound good? Oh, I like this already. I, I like where this is going. All right, first up, we'll go to the Butler Bulldogs, Gus. Talk about Jekyll and Hyde. Butler has been as schizophrenic a basketball personality as we've seen. Let's look at the good, the Jekyll. 
18 and 4 off uh, overall record. They beat Northwestern, they beat Arizona, they won at Utah, they beat Indiana, they beat number 1 Villanova, they beat number 22 Cincinnati and number 15 Xavier. That is an impressive group there. The problem is, here's the Mr. Hyde. Loss at Indiana State, who by the way is 8 and 15 currently and ninth in the Missouri Valley Conference. Uh, they just Crazy. had a big 1-point overtime win over the 1 in 10 Evansville Purple Aces last night. So I don't care that game was Indiana State. That's not a good loss early in the season, Gus. Back-to-back home losses now to Georgetown and the Mo Watson-less Creighton team at home. That's two bad losses. So, Gus, is Butler a contender or pretender for the Elite Eight? I loved your rundown. Here's my take. Definite contender. Your classification with Butler in our with like UVA our last podcast was 100% correct just for different reasons the pace at which both those teams play UVA and Butler is so slow so snail like that the pace of play dictates a few different things you guys you ready it dictates fewer possessions less offensive opportunities also less variance and a few huge runs back and forth you never hear that like Butler is on a 16-0 run, but you also conversely never hear that they're giving up a 16-0 run. So true. With those known elements in the equation, teams like UVA, Butler, Villanova, Wisconsin, and yes, even your beloved Baylor Bears and St. Mary's Gales, they create unique op- scoring opportunities at the end of the shot clock with matchups that they value very much in their favor. So this also allows for a team to do something unfamiliar, monkey-wrenching with the slowdown plan. Um, The the perfect example of this is St. Mary's also plays at this type of pace, and they got monkey-wrenched kind of by uh, UT Arlington, who they didn't know coming in, ran a couple of different sets, and they were just thrown off and then couldn't recover from the initial throw-off. So the other thing that this allows, which is dangerous, and this has happened to Butler a couple of times— is it allows for a team to get hot and go crazy at the end game situation and grab a win due to the low score for both teams. You can, you know, best example of that is C. Marquette and Villanova. So I guess the conclusion is that they are never out of a game, but they also allow lesser teams in the game more often than, say, like a fast paced UNC or a fast paced Kentucky or, you know, even our beloved Comet, um, UCLA. So I'm going to say definite contender due to the low variance of their results. It's not like they're going to get blown out and they're going to be in every game and maybe have a chance for a big upset, i.e. when they beat Villanova. So I'm going to say definite contender for Butler for those particular reasons. Very good. I, I, I'm i not sure where I sit with Butler. I'm very up in the air with them. It depends on the matchups. If they play a slowdown team, to me, they clearly have been identified as a first-round loss possibility. But if the matchups are are good and in their favor, and like you said, they control the pace of play, this is a team that can make an Elite Eight or even better. So to me, I'm very up in the air about this. I'm glad to hear your opinion because I could could have won either way. I guess I have to wait for the matchups. But which Butler team is going to show up? I have no idea. But I, I agree. They play less possessions. It's a good point. So some of these games are going to be a lot closer than they should be. The question is what's going to happen in March. Yeah, and again, like we said, like that fall, that, that, that if a team happens to like – get it right or get hot four minutes to go, then that game might turn into a loss for them. However, if that get hot or hot streak is in the first half, 
then they'll be efficient the rest of the game to make up for that. So it just I think it just depends um, if that hot streak comes at the end of the game, then they're in trouble. But um, they're usually they're able to weather pretty much any storm that's going to come their way. Um, so I think, again, fewer possessions, less variance. All right, moving on. Second up, let's go, Gus, to the Florida Gators. This one is less of a Jekyll Hyde and more of a are we sure they're really good? Yeah, good call. Gators are 16-5, and 6-2 and two in the SEC. They are third behind Kentucky and South Carolina, who are now tied. Mm-hmm. Gators lost by five in Florida at the Advocare Invitational to Gonzaga earlier in the year. That's a, game game. They, that's a game they led by four points with 10 minutes left. So they gave Gonzaga their toughest game all year. They've lost to Duke in New York City. They lost at Florida State, at South Carolina, and home against Vanderbilt. That's a bad loss. Right. They, but they've beaten Seton Hall in Miami and at Oklahoma. However, in short, one could make the argument that they are, Gus, the king of the little people because they really haven't beaten anyone substantial. However, on the last broadcast, ESPN's Dick Vitale did talk about how this Saturday's home game, which we'll get to on Broadway versus Kentucky, is a potential loss for John Calipari and company. Gus, Florida Gators, contender or pretender? All right. They are 100% contender. Absolutely. Here's why. You ready for this? They're Wichita State from last year. They are a bit undervalued, a little bit under the radar. Teams are not uh, teams, coaches, programs are not appreciating how good they are. They don't really have like that stamp the passport type of win, like you mentioned. So nothing on the resume is really going to stand out. But in a sneaky, not so obvious way, every single night they're going to have one of the best players on the floor. Maybe not against Kentucky, maybe not against Gonzaga, and maybe not against South Carolina with uh, Thornwell. But Hill, Robinson, or Barry are going to be the best player on the floor in most games that they play. This is so similar to the Shockers when they had Clear Anthony Early, uh, uh, Ron Baker, and and Van Vliet, where one of those guys was the best player on the floor in pretty much every game that they played. I bet they're going to be under-seeded in March. I bet they pull a seed upset, but not necessarily a true upset, very similar to Arizona and Wichita State last year, which you remember was a big seed upset, but not really a Vegas upset. Um, Mike White has them playing the right way for sure. And, you know, the metrics really like Florida. I do too. And I think they're going to be undervalued in March and they're going to be part of one of those cool upsets if they don't get too hot and go ahead and blow out Kentucky and then everybody starts paying attention to them. Um, so I'm going to say 100% contender for the Florida Gators. Yeah, I totally agree. I love Florida. I'm a huge Florida guy. I like him this weekend. I like him to win on Saturday. There's a little preview of on Broadway. I, I think Casey Hill is under control. Uh, Canyon Barry off the bench gives them a lot of depth. Uh Kevon Allen's been hitting those threes. Mike White's done a great job. I feel like they hit rock bottom when he made that comment at halftime against Duke. We yep. just, we're just not doing anything right. They're better than us, and they've come out of there. I like what he's doing. They're going to make it. They're going to be an issue. They're a tough matchup. You want to say winning in Oklahoma is not a big deal? Sure it is. It was the, the SEC Big 12 Challenge. That's a tough road game. Oklahoma's a team that went into West Virginia and won. Like Florida, I agree. Contender. Uh, okay. Um, I want to hear your other two teams that you're going to throw pretender or contender at. Oh, here we go, my friend. Third, the USC Trojans. Andy Enfield's team started the season by rattling off 14 consecutive wins. Then they hit the skids. They lost three of four, blowout loss at Oregon, home against Cal, and then at Utah. 
After the tough road win at Colorado, ask Oregon how tough that is, they returned home to lose 73-66 to Arizona. No shame there. But just when we were about to chalk them up as a pretender, they beat number 8 UCLA 84-76 and had that game pretty handily most of the time. They played 15 games without leading scorer Benny Boatwright, but he scored 23 points in the last game in an 82-74 win at Washington. So he is back and looks fantastic. But for the three consecutive games coming up, Gus, how about these three games in a row? Home Oregon, then at UCLA and Arizona. Tough. Will the real real USC team please stand up? Gus, who's going to stand up, the contender or the pretender? Okay, this one I'm a little torn on. So I'm going to say pretender, but I am going to give you a script where they could be a contender. And the script is really familiar. It's a movie we've seen before. It was just a few few years back at Florida Gulf Coast with Coach Enfield. USC is an underrated athletic team that pushes the pace and gets more offensive touches for his athletes in transition, preferably at the rim. They are not, their success is not predicated by three-point makes. They are not three-pointer dependent. This USC team uses made threes as a complete bonus. And even when they do shoot it, they do shoot it okay at about 37% as a team and only guard Elijah Stewart shoots more threes than foul shots. So they take it to the rim hard, look to get fouled, and look to make their foul shots. He's currently the only Trojan to hoist more than 100 threes, and he should. He's shooting them at about a 40% clip. Now, this type of play always travels well and is tough to contain, even if you're a good slowdown team, because you're not reliant on like, oh, does the rim feel right? Oh, how's the backdrop behind the basket? Is it good for shooters? Um, Is it too hot? Is it too cold? Um... Is the ball, uh, you know, deflated? You know, there's our deflate gate uh, uh, mention right there. Um, all they're going to do is compete. So I know they don't defend really well. I know they're not overly efficient on offense, but they do have top-level student athletes who love to run up and down and get out and, quite frankly, are playing with a lot of confidence thanks to Coach Enfield and their staff. Their student athletes are invested big time. They do seem like a second weekend team when you look at them that way, waiting to happen. Um, but they really need a first round matchup that's just right. They need a team that's going to be a little bit slow so they can get them out of their out of their comfort zone. Um, I bet they sneak back into the top twenty five with Boatwright and they win one or two of those big games. Um, you mentioned he had twenty three points. It was only in like twenty one minutes, which is crazy. Um, he's going to be back to help the front court. And I bet they obtain a single-digit seed. It just depends on if it's like a five seed or if it's a nine seed. I'm going to say hashtag hashtag West Coast Bigs. I'm going to say pretender, but we gave you the script on how they could be. uh, I'm going to say pretender, but we gave you the script on how they could be a contender. Yeah, this is another team. That's a great breakdown. This is another team I'm really torn on. I just don't know. I could see them getting hot like a Florida Gulf Coast. Jordan McLaughlin's very underrated, really attacks quick, super quick guard. Love him. Boatwright is a major issue inside. Enfield's been there before. I think these three games tell us a lot. I want to see how they perform. Definitely a team because of the East Coast bias that no one's going to pay attention to and could sneak up and do very, very well. This is tough, but Boatwright coming back makes a big difference. They beat UCLA without him. Probably hard for me to say they're not going to be a contender with him back, but let's see what happens over the next three three big games. 
Uh, yeah, those are going to be very telling games, kind of like Dr. Tony said, the next couple games for Maryland will be very telling as well. Those th- That stacked lineup of three games is going to uh, let everybody know if they're for real or maybe bring them back down to earth a little bit. All right, last one I got for you, my friend. Ready? Yeah, yeah, let's roll. Last one, contender pretender, Northwestern Wildcats. Ranked, uh, yep, ranked number 25 in the country. Wildcats have been one of the feel-good stories of the year. They started 3-2 and two with losses against Butler and Notre Dame, tough teams. Northwestern reeled off eight consecutive wins to start conference play at 11-2. and two. They won the opening road win, it's a road win, against Penn State and had back-to-back losses at Michigan State and home against Minnesota. It had me thinking and maybe many other people, here we go, same old Northwestern, starts out 10-2, and two, goes into the conference, goes in the tank. However, six consecutive conference wins brought the Wildcats to 18-4, and 7-2 and in conference, and they have a top 25 ranking. Uh, however, the road wins in that six-game group were the following teams – at Nebraska, at Rutgers, and at Ohio State. Not exactly the creme de la creme in the country. Last night, they got blitzed on the road at Purdue, 80-59. to So, it's is the Northwestern Gus just happy to be there in March? Are they a home team only? Or can they really do some damage? Northwestern Wildcats, contender or pretender? Okay. I'll answer contender or pretender in about one paragraph. Because we want to preface it by saying March always rewards teams that do something really well, whatever that something is. How about rebounding? Let's look at Yale last year against your Baylor Bears. They rebound the ball at an unbelievably high rate. They're rewarded. How about shooting it from deep? Oklahoma makes their final four run with everybody shooting threes led by Buddy Heald at an unbelievable percentage. How about if you defend at a high level? Look at Louisville this year. Even with all of their injury woes, they are still playing at a high level because they can defend the heck out of anybody. Or how about this? Maybe they even enjoy playing together in uncomfortable situations and have like a veteran feel to the team. I'm going to go with maybe UNC this year after making the final game last year and bringing a whole bunch of those guys back. So I'm going to say pretender because I don't know if Northwestern fits into any of those categories. This may be a situation for the time where the invite to the party is the best part. Um, But let's celebrate if they do get that invite and let's enjoy the pathway that they take to get that letter in the mail and to get their camera in their locker room when they announce that on Selection Sunday. That should be celebrated all season. Kudos to Coach Collins and the Wildcats. Um, Let's hope that invite and those guys screaming, jumping out of their chairs, dressed in purple, is one of the final images we see in one shining moment in April. So we want to tra- we want to champion them for making for changing a culture, uh, a century long culture. But at the same time, I think we have to be realistic and go pretender. I agree. I think they're pretender, and I love Northwestern. I, they're going to make the tournament. I'm very happy for them. But in this particular segment, if this is the question we're talking about, it is very difficult for me because of the unbalanced schedule, to support this team that played Michigan State once, Wisconsin once, and Michigan once. They're going to end up playing Purdue at home in the last game of the year. They still have tough games at Wisconsin. They have Maryland at home. They had an unbalanced schedule, worked in their favor. They deserve it. They probably had really tough schedules the last couple of years. I have no problem with that. But if we're going to be true to this, Gus, and we have to figure out if a team can make the Sweet 16, Elite 8, and beyond – I have to put Northwestern in a pretender until I see them win a, a quality road game. You know what? 
much like we brought up with uh, USC, where those next three games are really going to tell the story. Uh, I think that Purdue game started to tell the story a little bit about Northwestern. I don't think it, I don't think there's any lying around that. There's no getting around that they got blown out. So I think you're onto something there. I think we're in agreement that we're both going to say pretender, but hey, why not celebrate with those guys? I really like the contender pretender. Can we bring that back for a team or two uh, next podcast or so? Certainly, we'll do it for Doctor Tony. I'd like to get his comments on it as well. Yeah, contender pretender. Yeah. I think it's going to change. Oh. Yeah, yeah, I like that a lot. Uh, hey, do you want to take a little walk down Broadway and see what's uh, see what the schedule brings us? Uh, of course, my friend. On Broadway. All right, so on Broadway, a couple quick things before we go to the future games. I want to mention two things. Number one, Middle Tennessee State tonight, Gus, won on the road, beat University of Texas, San Antonio, on the road, big win, 69-59. They continue their assault. They're 10-0 in Conference USA, so kudos to Kermit Davis and his group. Big road win. Giddy Potts, by the way, is 4-8 of eight from three-point range. He's getting a little warmed up. So just wanted to throw that plug in there for Middle Tennessee State because we love them. Go Raiders. I mean, let's go. We are big Middle Tennessee State fans. Um, again, I am just waiting for the opportunity to view them. I am searching the dial to see when they pop up. I am going to dial them up whenever they pop up to give them a view for sure. And Gus, the second one, and I could have called this one easily. I know you were nervous about the at BYU game tonight. I was not whatsoever. They're not losing at BYU. And Gus, you got an in-game update right now? What do we got going on? Uh, yeah, sure. We are uh, as we are potting and uh, making the podcast. We have uh, a score of thirty-four twenty-one in the first half, about five minutes to go. So Gonzaga is looking pretty good. We're trying to keep an eye on it and give you guys some information at the same time. So we're trying to do you know multitask and do multiple things at once. I'm just gonna say go Zags. I'm so happy that we get to celebrate them as the number one team and they get to take the floor as the number one team in the country. Here's hoping they get this game so they can actually take the floor on uh, take their home court uh, as the number one team in the country. That place would go bananas if that was the case. So let's hope they have that opportunity this this next weekend. Yeah, we'll see what happens next weekend, my friend, at 5:15 on Saturday. But that's for another podcast. Moving on. Our, our first game, Gus, I think we should talk about on Broadway. Little Metro Atlantic Athletic Conference Friday night action tomorrow night. 18 and 5 Monmouth Hawks, a favorite of the podcast, host the 12 and 10 St. Peter's Peacocks at 7 o'clock p.m. on ESPN3. You may think this game doesn't matter because of the records. Not so fast, my friend. Mm-hmm. Huge game for Monmouth here. They are 10 and 2 in the MAC, just two full games ahead. I'm sorry, two full games ahead of Iona and St. Peter's. Two games. Congratulations to guard Justin Robinson, who just became Monmouth's all-time league scorer last game. Monmouth Gus lost at St. Peter's 71-61, one of their two losses in the conference back on January 2nd, the games you always talk about during the break. After this game, Monmouth goes on the road for five of their last seven, including a season-ending game up in New Rochelle at Iona, which they do not want to count for this title. Gus, the line is Monmouth minus nine at home against the team they already lost to, St. Peter's, who already they already beat them. Gus, what do you got tomorrow night? Uh, listen, that game totally falls underneath my uh, vacation game um, hypothesis where not everybody's on campus. People are out of their rhythm. Uh, they're out of their normal routine. Guess what? Everybody's back on campus at Monmouth. People are going to be fired up for this game. Give me Monmouth. And the points, 
Uh, I'm going to say Hawks take it. They definitely – the point that you brought up that they do not want to go to, to Iona to have this conference title on the line at that point. They want to have it sewn up. They win this game. That's going to put them one step closer to that. And you know what? Here's another thing. I love these Friday night games on ESPN. I, 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 I enjoy, totally enjoyed the Dayton VCU game last week. Uh, I'm looking forward to watching this one. Uh, I love that they put these little under-the-radar, um, smaller conference games on Friday night for the uh, a vagabond junkies like ourselves and our listeners. Dr. Tony's talking about going to that game. If that game means something, that Iona-Monmouth game, I think I'm taking you out to Mariano Rivera Steakhouse, both of you guys. I think we're hitting up a uh, new Rochelle maybe for that one. But, I wow. do, I, yeah, I don't think it's going to matter. I do think Monmouth takes it. Nine's a lot, but they're home. Friday night, Monmouth, fans will be ready to go. Moving on. Little Metro Atlantic Athletic Conference one for you there, Gus. Uh, my, my other prediction about that game is they're going to shoot about 100 T-shirts into the crowd nah, for that yeah. game. Firing, <laughs> firing the T-shirts. Next one I want to get your opinion on. Headed uh, on Saturday. Let's go to a Big Ten battle. Number 23, Purdue visits number 17, Maryland. Raise your hand, Gus, if you had Maryland leading the Big Ten on February 2nd. <laughs> Bueller, anyone? Bueller. Crickets. Uh, the 8-1 Terps' only loss was home against Nebraska, shockingly, but the Boilermakers bring the biggest test of the season. They are the first team, Gus, that Maryland is playing all year that is ranked. They have not played a ranked team. Which is totally odd. R- Purdue is 7-3, and three, and they're not scared of playing on the road because, Gus, the sign should say, have big, will travel. If you have a big guy inside, the road games become much, much easier. Loss here, though, for Purdue makes the Big Ten title probably an afterthought for them because they'd be two games behind Maryland, two games behind Wisconsin, and they'd fall a half game behind, shockingly, Northwestern, who they just blitzed at home. Gus, what do you think? Oh, give me Purdue, give me Biggie, give me Haas. I just think that Maryland, Maryland – look, Maryland's been playing great. We, we, we've trumpeted. Uh, Mellow Mello Tremble and his now seven games that he's pretty much won independently for the Terps. Uh, this isn't going to be one of the games that he can win. I can see this. You're real big with a double-digit win. I can see this as being like a 17, 19, 21-point win for Purdue. I think the bigs are going to uh, dominate inside. I think uh, Coach Painter is going to do a great job with the matchups and go uh, play Haas when necessary, uh, play Biggie at the five when necessary. Give me another 25 and 15 game for Swan again and give me like a double digit, high double digit win for Purdue. Good one. Good call. I don't know where I stand on this one. I, I don't see Purdue winning massively on the road. I don't. Do I see Purdue mm-hmm. winning the game? Yeah, possibly. I think it's a good one. But I just think Melo's been so good that he's going to somehow keep you close. Throw in some Kevin Herter threes, Gus, and maybe. Uh, <laughs> Very nice. Close. I love that he's making multiple appearances on the podcast. How How, how is that a bad thing? Uh, what do we got next on Saturday? Hey, uh, let's go ACC. How about number 20, Notre Dame, visiting number 12, UNC? Um, I really feel like Notre Dame's weakness is going to be 100% exposed here by the UNC bigs running amok with offensive board opportunities, a whole bunch of and ones on putbacks. I think Notre Dame's only shot here is to speed up to UNC-type pace but then also shoot it like a crazy clip from three, like 55% good from three-point land. But in the long run, here's what I see. I see another big game from Joel Berry II. This is what he does in ranked team against ranked team matchups. 
Um, how about another 23 points with a few big threes in the second half that are game changer threes and turn like a, a two point lead into an eight point lead and then it stretches out to a double digit lead for UNC. Close closer game early, UNC wins second half, pulling away late. I don't see this being close at all. I I really think that Notre Dame has struggled with teams rebounding inside. They're not home in this game. They are on the road. Meeks and Hicks are going to pound them. May's going to come in and play very well. They're going to run them out of the gym. This is a bad, bad, bad matchup for Notre Dame. I do not care what the line is. I would give 20 in a heartbeat. This is not the matchup for Notre Dame. They've been struggling. This has Beecham getting two points all over it. What's Farrell and Bonzi going to have 30 each? This is a bad matchup. I think UNC pulls away early and stays away the entire time. Here's here's my devil's advocate uh, argument. Like UNC just had to pull out a win against Pitt. And if you remember their matchups last year, their matchups last year were unbelievably uh, competitive and really high-level games. Um, so there's a lot of players back from both of those matchups that they had last year. Um, but I'm with you. I think UNC pulls away late and pulls away by a substantial margin. Take a quick look down uh, at one of your guys, the Gamecocks, at South Carolina next. Georgia is going to head to number 19, South Carolina and I think the question here is, which is a very odd question, like will Georgia build off of the OT loss at Kentucky, which is like an odd thing to, to ask. I don't think they will here. South Carolina has an unbelievably tough combination for any team to take care of. They play a top-level defense. They have a top-level defensive approach, and they team that with a player playing at an All-American level. One of Mike's favorites, uh, Sundarius Thornwell, is playing that high of a level. Um, I'm going to say tight game due to what we mentioned before, like pace of play and how the Gamecocks play. Um, with the Gamecocks getting a few late game stops, uh, give me South Carolina at home here. Yeah, I agree. South Carolina. Let's keep in mind, they've lost one game with Thornwell, and that game yep. was at Kentucky, and he had 32 or 34 points. So Georgia... Okay, hanging in there. Nice job on the road. Kentucky, who flakes in and out, which is kind of why I like the Florida pick. Yeah, South Carolina at home. Uh, easy, I think. Let's just take a quick look at our Comet sighting out west. Uh, number 11, UCLA, heads to the great northwest to fa- face Washington. Now, we're not looking at this game for the game itself. We're looking at this game for the matchup. But also, we're looking at this game to see what the over-under number is going to be. Do you think it's going to be like 185 or 190? It's the, only, ch- it's the only chance Washington has. They got they got a run and gun. Look, the Frosh point guard matchup is what we're going to pay attention to here. Here is the screen, the screener, special prognostication for you listeners out there. Ready for this, Mike Randall? How about both Lonzo Ball and Markel Fultz go for triple doubles in this game? Wow. That Double, would be incredible. Triple doubles. That's your screen, the screener prognostication on this game. Comet UCLA gets back on course and back out to proper orbit. Admire them as they fly through the sky. Yeah, it's a shame. Washington's got a big recruit already that's committed to them for next year. I love Lorenzo Romar. He's getting them to play hard, but you know what? This is a, this is a tough spot. They're home. You never know. UCLA's got to right the ship here. They've had a couple losses now. They've got three losses in conference. I'm with you, UCLA. All right, so two games left. Two biggest games of the weekend left, right? Game that you pre- uh, prefaced already. 
Number eight, Kentucky travels to number 24, Florida. About two weeks ago, the thought was, a nice game, maybe Florida can keep it close. And now, after like multiple 30-point blowouts by the Gators, I think things have changed a little bit. The Wildcats are still number one in the uh, SEC, but are now tied with South Carolina, and they're only one game ahead of the Gators who they're going to face this weekend. Kentucky has shown a weakness for losing back-to-back games at Tennessee and home to Kansas. Um, Florida, meanwhile, has won three in a row, including two road games, um, one at Oklahoma in, as you mentioned, the SEC Big 12 Challenge. And you're, you know what? Junior guard Chris Chioza has been playing out of his head, and he even put up a triple-double recently. He has been like the second point guard that can play back with Hill and is causing unbelievable matchup problems for them. Mike Randall, will Florida pull the upset here? Yes, they will. They will because Kentucky has shown, as all the freshmen do, they flake out at times. Kentucky really hasn't had a start-to-finish destruction game this year. That game against South Carolina, they got up early. South Carolina came all the way back, and they pulled ahead. They are not home anymore. They are on the road. This game is definitely going to be close. Bam has struggled inside. He'll struggle with some of the bigs. Canyon Barry coming off the bench. Hill is going to be able to – he's going to be the most athletic guy that De'Aaron Fox is going to have to deal with. He's also a senior versus a freshman. Mike White's an excellent coach. I think Cal's weakness is the X and O's. I could see White throwing some zone in there, some triangle in two to see if yep. they can figure it out. Biggest game in Gainesville in quite a while. Yes, I think Florida pulls the upset. Yes. Hey, can I add one more defensive scheme that he's going to throw in there? I bet he goes one three one two. Sure. Sure. I'm, I'm, I'm locking up that you're going to see Florida in a 1-3-1 to confuse uh, Kentucky for sure. And how about last game? Go a little West Coast love for everybody. Number five, Arizona, goes to number 13, Oregon. Huge Pac-12 tilt. In this game, if we don't mention the hashtag West Coast Bigs, when are we going to mention it? Um, Arizona goes a long way to winning the Pac-12 with a road win here, and they're currently uh, – 20-2 and and 9-0 and in the conference. Oregon took that bad loss at Colorado and recently makes this a must-win if they are going to stay in contention for the Pac-12 regular season title because it'll put them a two full games behind if they, with a loss. Uh, Oregon has an unbelievably rough stretch here. Uh, you mentioned the rough stretch for USC, and this just kind of uh, um, uh, like crossword puddle puzzles it a little bit. Um, they have to play... Arizona, and then they have to go to UCLA, and then the game that we mentioned previously, they have to go to USC. So these three games are going to be um, are going to show the country and show the Pac-12 like where where are things going to stand? Is it going to be Arizona or is it going to be Oregon? Um, the Bruins are lurking at seven and three, and USC has boat right back. Mike Randall. You got a feel on this one yet or not so much? I, I don't have a feel. I just can't wait to watch it. I think it's the game yeah. of the weekend. I I think that – I mean, Oregon is struggling right now. They had the tough loss at Colorado. They're losing at home right now at halftime to Arizona State. Arizona has been a buzzsaw. They have – Sean Miller's done such a good job. They come in, Gus, right away, and they start winning games right away. That The games that they've struggled in, ironically, are the home games against substandard teams. But when mm-hmm. they play good teams, they've been ready to go. Alonzo Trier – changes 
the game for them. They don't have a true point guard. Cartwright's okay, but like a scoring point guard. So Trier creates a lot in the half court. Screen and roll with Marketing. Marketing steps out, bang. Ristic has made some shots. They are really, really tough. You made me pick. I'm going to pick Arizona if I had to, but I certainly could see it's a tough place to play in Oregon up there. Just can't wait to watch. I think this is the game of the weekend. I think the atmosphere is going to be absolutely bananas. Uh, I hope that we catch a a tie-dyed Bill Walton on the sideline somewhere. And if I was leaning one way or the other, too, I think your lean naturally would go towards the hotter team, which is Arizona. But I'm not going to sell Oregon short here on their home court, and I'm going to take the Ducks here and go uh, opposite your pick. I'm going to say Ducks with some more late-game heroics by Pritchard or or, or Dylan Brooks. Um, I think they're going to surprise and bring the Wildcats back down to earth a little bit. Sounds good. I agree. And by the way, if we check into Gonzaga right now, 42-26 Gonzaga. I mean, can we just get to next Saturday, please? Yes. Go Zags. Oh, I'm so I, I'm so excited that when we end this podcast, I'm just going to continue my uh, vagabond uh, basketball ways and stay up and watch that second half and enjoy viewing the number one team in the country for one, for, for their first game as, uh, as the number one team in the country. Can't wait. Hey, people out there, listeners out there, people that are putting us in your earbuds, thank you, thank you, and thank you. Thank you for finding some time in your week uh, to listen to the Screen the Screener podcast and and listen to Mike's and I uh, silliness. Um, We hope that you enjoyed the interview with Coach Kermit Davis. He was so kind to come on and give us some time, and it was awesome that he followed uh, that interview up with a big road win. Um, So go Middle Tennessee State. Thanks to Bell Jar. Thanks for bringing us in and out. Uh, we're in uh, negotiations with them uh, to maybe try out another song on our intro and outro. So if you hear a different song, one of these next podcasts, it's them. We're just trying out a different song from them. So we'll work that out the next few podcasts. And uh, we also want to say thank you to the technology department. That technology department hooked up Kermit Davis in that interview. Thank you, technology department. Technology. Go Blue Raiders. <laughs> Love it. Hey, I think I hear Bell Jar coming in. Mike, always good to catch up with you. Always good to catch up with the listeners. Enjoy the games this weekend, especially the two biggies. And uh, hey, don't forget to pay attention to that Friday night game that we mentioned, people. That's a big game for Mammoth and St. Peter's. Friday night, Mammoth, St. Peter's. Sunday, Super Bowl. Monday, Gus and Mike Randall back in action. Screen the screen.